G'day everybody, it's your host Travis McKenzie. Welcome or welcome back to the Inner Voice podcast. Today's guest is an inspirational leader, someone I had the pleasure of working with and for in my time at Lululemon. Duke Stump makes a special appearance on the I'm Curious to Know project. I describe him as a marketing maven, but he's more than that. He's a soulful dude with an intellect and wit that's hard to match. I enjoyed learning more about Duke's career journey, his love of nature, and the joy he gets from solitude and quiet. I couldn't think of a better guest to join me as I explore my own curiosity and seek meaning in these uncertain times. It's certainly a different conversation than many I've had on this platform, but it's one I'm extremely proud to bring you. Please enjoy the show. Today's guest uh, is a special one, uh, like they all have been, but this one's extra special. This is a reunion for my guests today and I. We worked together, we crossed paths for a time at, at Lululemon, and I have some interesting sh- stories and thoughts to share about that. But uh, before I go into that, Duke, how are you, mate? I'm excellent, man. It's great to reconnect. I want to start with uh, the impact you had on me. I, you probably, I probably haven't told you this, and you probably don't know this, but you were probably the most impactful leader that I ever had the privilege of working with. And it probably just came through the way that you carried yourself. You are a very soulful guy. You're a very thoughtful, articulate person. You take care and time to get to know people. And that was really meaningful for me. And then there's plenty of other stories and thoughts that I can share. But that's that's my recollection of our time together. And it's, it was an honor to work with you and for you. And and now to be staying in touch and reconnect, reconnecting today is uh, is, is equally as, as fantastic. So. I appreciate the kind words. I mean, it was a blast uh, working with you. By the way, the one story I will have I have to share is I had just moved into my apartment in Chinatown in Vancouver, and you and a couple others decided to have a going away party for your mate, Ben Jackson. In one one hour, I had three people in the building that wanted to kick me out for... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, welcome, welcome to the building. As much as I actually have amazing fine memories of the work that I do remember, I'm like... I've lived here a week and I'm going to get kicked out because of Travis. Ben Jackson is a, is a great dude and we wanted to send him off in style and what better location than, than the new boss's new apartment. Good memories there. Uh, I want to t- kind of take a step back and, and learn a little bit more about your journey and share a bit more of your journey. I, I've kind of quoted you as a bit of a marketing maven and an old school marketer. Tell me about your journey into, particularly into getting into sports marketing with with Nike and kind of the grounding you got at that organization. In 89, I had just returned. I was playing hockey in Sweden and I moved to California. My parents were living there. And when you live in Sweden, you can't wait to see the sun. There's literally no sun. I was trying to get a job. No joke. I typed out like 200 letters, sent out 200 letters, got zero response. I then got a opportunity to uh, apply for a job at Xerox. Oh Christ, I'm going to be selling copiers. This is not going to be good. And then a good friend was like, hey, you got to come up to Nike. And I was like, oh, hell yeah. Like, I love sports. It's Nike. And I was so fortunate. I landed arguably one of the greatest first roles ever. It's called an Eakin. It's Nike spelled backwards. You're put in a territory and you're the eyes and ears of the brand. And they give you a couple of simple tasks and they let you play. I spent 16 years at Nike. And I think for me, I always say, like, I didn't go to grad school. I went to the school of Nike. And it's not perfect, mind you. I mean, I uh, lived through the labor crisis and some other things. But beyond that, I think the, the way that place thought about things, it was intoxicating for me. It was the antithesis of what I learned in school in many ways. So I just felt blessed. I 
took on so many different roles while I was there. You know, we moved around quite a bit. We were in LA, Portland, Montreal, Hawaii. And so anyways, yeah, that was my first, like, I somehow got really, really, really lucky. Yeah, that was the first half of my uh, working career. Tell me about what that was like when you talk about that intoxicating nature, but then you also talk about the labor crisis and even most more recently with some of the things that have happened there. Like, how did you reconcile that in your head? It's obviously a place that you love. It's a brand you stand behind. It's a brand you believe in. And there's this whole other, all of these other issues are happening. Like, how can you kind of go to work every day and and feel good about that? The labor crisis was really, really challenging because you want to believe that it's not true. Truthfully, even Phil Knight, the founder, admitted his biggest mistake in that crisis was not being transparent right up front. Like he was like, okay, hired the heavy PR thing, we'll circle the wagons. Meanwhile, there was a lot of people on the team, people I deeply admire was like, no, actually, this is a, it's a subcontractor, but it's real. You know, and the brand paid the price. Even now you talk about child labor, it's like yeah. what brand comes to mind. So it, there's a stigma that you forever are, I think you're connected to. And it was one of the reasons I actually left years later. You know, I'd been there for 16 years um, and it was really, really good. And there was things obviously I didn't really, wasn't jonesing about, but I was like, I can, I can envision the next 16 years. And I was deeply fascinated with corporate responsibility. I was like, all right, where could I go? And I got this job at Seventh Generation, which was a leader in environmental household products. But what it really was, was a leader in corporate responsibility. And I went from Nike, where I learned a shitload around building a brand and all those things. I learned some other lessons that, you know, from hardship. And I got to Seventh Generation, and it was all about transparency. You know, we would mess up. And it was like, we got to tell everybody. And, you know, my first inclination is like, is that the right thing? And then sure enough, like we would go out and tell the world like, hey, you know, we gave them honesty, not perfection. And people like loved it. My first big meeting at Seventh Generation was with Greenpeace. It was the first ever for-profit to partner with Greenpeace. You remember sitting in the room like, I'm in here with Greenpeace. And for 16 years, this brand was like trying to take the hide out of Nike. Mm. And here we are like creating an activist program called Change It in D.C., I think for me, like deep down, I always was curious around like, well, what does it mean to be a soulful brand? And uh, I learned about the role of soul at Seventh Generation, and I learned a lot about how to build an emotionally charged brand and making. So when you were doing the introductions around the room with Greenpeace, you you skipped over the, the, the period at Nike. You're just like, yeah, I worked at this company in Portland, Oregon, and then just move on to the next point. Well, it's funny. In the interview process, there was this. <laughs> amazing guy he was the director of corporate consciousness at seven generation his name was gregor barnum he sadly he passed away a number of years ago and he was a yale theology major i go in my interview and he's wearing his john lennon screws glasses he's got a ponytail he doesn't say anything i'm sitting in the room he unscrews his thermos pours some coffee in it sits back and he says like hey so you're from nike and i said yeah you know i'm like all like yeah and he's like yeah so you're like satan I was like, oh my God, I'm not going to get this job. Within the conversation, we shifted to philosophy and I told him how much I love Buckminster Fuller. And then it was like, it was like, oh, okay, like we're good. And he was such an amazing mentor to me on how to look at business. You know, you talked about your beginnings at Nike and the, you know, your sports and you're around sports people and athletes and, and driven people and type A personalities probably within that organization. And then you go to seventh generation and you're, you know, you've got the, the philosophers and the, the the hippies, for the want of a better term. How did you kind of meld yourself into that culture? 
Well, in some ways it was kind of a coming home because I had gone to a university at University of Vermont where Seven Generation was based. And if you've gone to University of Vermont, it's known as Groovy UV and it's, you know, you got to love nature, which I fell in love with nature. In fact, when I was in school in the 80s, Bernie Sanders was the mayor. And it was a really radical time. I mean, there was the divestment from apartheid and everything. Like, it was a pretty interesting period. So I think for many ways, I always had it. I just was coming back to that piece. And candidly, I feel most at home in that environment, not necessarily a competitive sports environment, although I love sport, obviously. Putting the pieces together now, I can see the way that you approached both of those at Lululemon. You brought both of those pieces together. I think obviously there's not so much of that competitive element at Lululemon, but there's still, you're moving, you're active, you're sweating, you're doing yoga, you're thinking about how yoga can transform your performance away from the mat. You came to Lululemon at a time when the brand really needed some help. People didn't trust the brand anymore. There'd been so many issues that had come up. What were you thinking when you, you're interviewing and you get off of that job and you're like, well, this is going to be a heavy lift right here? I remember this. I've shared this before with others. When the recruiter called, I was living in Ohio, my own company. She's like, hey, I've got this company I want you to talk to. I'm like, I'm good. She's like, I haven't even told you the company. I'm like, no, I'm good. And then she's like, no, come on, it's Lululemon. And in the fall of 2014, it was listed as a brand that wouldn't exist in 2015 with Sears. There was the recall product issue. There was the mercurial proxy battle with Chip Wilson, the original founder. And I was like, why would anyone go to that thing? And so I just remember when I walked in, I was like, I said, okay, I'll go up. I was like, all right, I'll go up to Vancouver. You know, I love Vancouver, free trip, <clears throat> check it out, was curious. And I'm always really attentive or attuned to the, the vibration of a culture, any building when you go in. I think a lot of times you can tell if the vitality of a place by just being attuned to the vibration of anytime you walk in and I was like, this place is going to be a morgue. And I walked in and it was full of life. And I was like, what is going on here? You know, I remember calling my wife that night. I'm like, I don't know what the work needs to be, but I need to be here. And going back to the competition thing, it's what I learned at Nike. And I think it's one of the biggest misses for most companies is at Nike, we didn't really talk about competition. I know that sounds crazy, but our whole thing was recognize that we, we need to play a different game. So we weren't in the business of making sneakers and tees. We are in the business of bottling inspiration. You played a completely different game. I mean, even now, go to Nike's Instagram, you see very little product. It's about inspiration. Yeah. When we were at Lulu, I think the opportunity was, like, immediately when I walked in the door, people were like, Athleta, whatever, like, what liquid competitions doing? I'm like, stop. Like, what do we need to be doing? The world doesn't need to do yoga. It needs to be yoga. That's when, like... Yeah. It's like the stars aligned for us and it changed. And then you don't compete. Yeah, you make your own destiny. You know, I was privileged to have a front row seat to, to, to this all play out. And I know that there was some, some battles that you had to fight and some, some scraps you needed to win to get a lot of the initiatives that you put in place across the line. Tell me about some of those moments where you had to, you know, draw a line in the sand and say, no, this is going to work for us. This direction is going to be impactful for, for this brand. Yeah, I mean, it's hard because I remember like at one point we were doing this campaign called This Is Yoga and none of it had any yoga on the mat. And people are like, what the hell are you doing? I remember the head of sales and the CFO were like, how much revenue is it going to drive or bring? And I'm like, I don't know. I just deep down know it's going to work. And we were an exec offsite and I told the execs, if it doesn't work, I'll walk out. I fervently believe in it. I actually think business is broken. I've lived it in a number of places. I just asking that would be curious enough and, and see. And then sure enough, like, you know, the work the team did was brilliant and the thing just 
went on a tear. It's still on yeah. a tear. You reference business is broken. Did you think that, are you saying that Lululemon was broken at the time? Or are you just like a general statement of like how people can approach business or the corporate corporate environment? This is my, my point of view. I feel like there needs to be an unlearning project on around how we go about running business. There's this really mechanical rote way of how to build a company. And I feel like brand and culture for, for me are like yin and yang, like they go hand in hand and like a simple thing. There's one principle I live by, which is it begins inside. And um, I learned that from Yvonne Chouinard at Patagonia at lunch one time when I was at seventh generation, we were sitting there having lunch and he's like, God, you mess up the world. And you got it all wrong. And I'm like, me personally? He's like, yeah. no, you guys and CMOs, you're a bunch of idiots. You spend all your time trying to connect and inspire the outside world. The number one audience you need to figure out is internal. And so if you remember, even at Lululemon, I applaud like the leadership at the time because I was like, I think we should go on a tour called Get Quiet, Live Loud. And I think we just got to get give people a permission slip to play again. And that was like 17 cities around the world. For me, it was a pivotal moment because coming out of the hardship of the brand, we're like, we're going to get back and you need to be empowered to play. That was the beginning. That and Camp Howdy, the brand camp trip. Tell me more about that. Like, I'm, I'm really intrigued to think about how that's kind of played out. You have that lunch, you have that meeting, inspire inside first. Like, how does that show up in the rest of your life? How does that show up when you have conversations at brands you're working with or consulting to? Is it's not an easy message to understand. At first glance, it's kind of like, uh, what does that mean? I think it goes back to another idea. You got to let people see and feel and then trust that it, you, it's the right thing. And it doesn't always work. I just left Lime. Well, they eliminated the brand team at Lime, the micromobility company, two weeks ago. I never have any regrets, actually. Like I went there with really intrigued because I was like, I saw something bigger than a scooter. I saw the ability to like focus on inclusivity and transit deserts and equity. And as being a bike commuter, I'm like, it just feels like that's, we all should move in this different way, but it doesn't always work, man. I would say Lime for me is unfinished business. There's a lot of accountability. I own the fact that it didn't work. I also think there was a strong Uber culture there, 30, 40% of the company's Uber. And they really went to one way. And one of the things they teach at Nike is don't leave Nike with a playbook, leave with philosophy. It's so helpful because like when I got to seventh generation, I didn't have a big budget. And so I, you couldn't bring a playbook. It was like, but bring a philosophy. My last chapter here at Lime was just an affirmation of like, okay, doesn't always go as planned. What's key is my chosen response. I'm like, all right, I'm going to rally like hell and do things I love with the people I love again. I want to challenge the status quo around business leadership. I really do. I think it's time. I'm going to put an asterisk on that because I want to come back to that because I know exactly the question I'm going to ask you. But I want to I want to talk about Lime because I noticed, obviously, when you went there, I was following along and I noticed that your DNA started to show up pretty much immediately. Some of the videos, some of the some of the work that was being done by the brand team to talk about those things that you just mentioned, you know, inclusivity and access to transit and and, and the ability to to get to where you need to be to, to live the life that you want to live. And I'm sad to see that, as you say, unfinished business, there's more there's more to be said there. I live by the Bucky quote, like there's nothing in the caterpillar that suggests there'll be a butterfly. So when you go to Nike, it's not about sneakers and cheese, it's about inspiration. If you go to a Lululemon, it's not about doing yoga, it's the Sabia being yoga. My immediate reaction to the line was, oh my God, like you can transform urban life here. Like there's the novelty of it, which everyone knows, which is generally a bunch of derelicts running around and scooters thrown everywhere. Got it and recognize that. And there's this whole other 
Hannah Beachler is was the set designer for Wakanda in the movie Black Panther. And she did a 500 page sketchbook on Wakanda. Like she just didn't build a futuristic city. Like she built it like she wanted and transportation was a big thing. Yeah. And she had this great quote about how transportation mobility has a domino effect and at the end of those dominoes are human lives. And I wanted to show how mobility, micromobility in particular, has this amazing positive impact on human lives, whether it's growing community, clean air, or uh, inclusivity. I was like, okay, that's it. I think the challenging thing is, and it's no different than anywhere else, is like, you know, the ops or sales team would be like, dude, I just been trying to grow trips. Yeah, me too. I'm trying to do the same thing, just in a different way. And I think there was a synapse error there. And ultimately they made the decision that, you know, to eliminate the brand team, which that's their prerogative. I want to talk about do lectures, but I also want to circle back to the um, changing perspective of, of business leaders. And I was on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago. Mark Cuban had put this op-ed piece out um, talking about kind of the future of civilization effectively and, and your thoughtful comment and, and, and editorial commentary popped up as a comment on that. And so I dug in a little further and I'm guessing that that's kind of what you're alluding to. There's this disconnect between business leaders and this capitalism and this corporate culture that that you think can shift? It was Mark Andreessen from Andreessen okay. Horowitz who had, wrote, had written the piece. And I go, maybe it's my Vermont roots again. But, you know, when you grow up in Vermont and you're living there, like Ben and Jerry's back in the day was just, they were radical, transforming business, but they cared deeply about the people. They did care deeply about the community. They stood for something meaningful. Yeah, the ice cream was epic and crazy, mm-hmm. but there was just this radical nature to, to things. And I look at business as... I think it could be an amazing force of good, but I also think it needs to change. Like uh, E.F. Schumacher, who I'm really going back to now, was this economist in the 60s and 70s and there was Schumacher College in the UK. And he wrote a great book called Small is Beautiful. And he talked about Buddhist economics. Now, I don't think there would be a time to talk about Buddhist economics, but I think now more than ever, I would love to basically undefine what it means to, to grow a business and introduce a whole new philosophy. And I do think culture matters more than ever. I love, I'm not a big Airbnb guy, but I think the way they, in a tough time of of letting people go, I don't know if you read the note from the CEO, but I was like, that's how you do it. They gave people really healthy sevences a year, I think even on uh, Cobra healthcare. I've lived the success of being an exec and I've seen what happens. Like your execs get, we all get fat and happy. And then everyone else in the big body of work is out there like fighting the good fight. I just think to me, there's a better way of doing business. So I, I just want to be the inspired protagonist, not the antagonist for how to build a better brand and culture and community going forward. Have you seen an example of that idea that you have showing up anywhere in business or you know from afar or something you've been involved in? Or, or what's the closest that you've come to, to that ideal scenario and status that you've seen? Three quick examples for me. And um, well, there's Patagonia down the street. When I was at Seven Generation, we had a thing called Eco Partners. We're all that head of marketing. We meet. So Aveda, uh, New Belgium Brewery, Seven Generation, Patagonia, and we would just share ideas. Well, the head of brand at the time was on mat leave and she was just coming back. So the head of someone at Patagonia calls me and is like, hey, we don't want her to be without her daughter. So we're going to fly she and her daughter out. Can you make sure that you find childcare for her uh, and we'll cover it all? And I was like, damn, like that place cares. Now they even take it to another level where you actually have, they fly you and your baby with somebody. 
you know, and as a result, there's like effortless loyalty. People will run through a brick wall there. You know, there's reason people are there for 30 years. This place cares about me. So Patagonia, my buddy David Hyatt, who created the Dew Lectures, Hyatt Denim in Cardigan, Wales. The world doesn't need another denim company, but he's trying to give 400 people in Cardigan, Wales, their jobs back. I think the way he treats that, that staff and his team and, you know, both he and his wife, Claire, it's amazing. And then it's a little known company, but it's epic. I hope people could check it out. It's called Rhino Foods and it's in Burlington, Vermont. And it's from Ted Castle, who's an old on alum, was an amazing all-American hockey player in the seventies. He supplies the supplier. So he supplies like cookie dough to Ben and Jerry's and everything. But what he's done whether it's loans to his staff on how they do microloans. It's crazy to me. Burlington is a big place for immigration. And I think his ability to bring in immigrants and give them a, an initial first step is like, that's the shit I get inspired by. I don't get inspired by going to a meeting or town hall and people asking about their equity. Let's talk about gender equity, not your stock. I love your perspective on that little anecdote. We, Lauren and I, my wife, uh, who you know well as well, um, we did a little tour of Patagonia years ago and uh you know she was looking at moving on from lululemon at the time and we did a tour and they had you know uh jerry's been here for 25 years and bob's been here for 30 years and judy over there is 35 years and we were just like at the time it was like oh that's scary like being in one place at one time but you know now you know it, it's clear why and the other example of that and i don't know if you've had much experience with these guys but would be ll being here same thing, um, you know, you've got your, your your 20 plus year award and you don't even get recognition until you get to that point kind of thing. It's like building a brand. I don't care about awareness because I think awareness is full of gold. I think preference is interesting, but really what's beautiful brand is when you build effortless loyalty. So how do you build effortless loyalty? Not just with people, your, your guests or who you're trying to serve externally, but how do you build that internally? Like culture to me, I think is this lost art. P people think culture is like, catchy phrases on walls yeah. or free beer at five on Thursdays or something. And that's so misguided. What's your example of the best culture you've been a part of? Oh, man, that's a hard one. I think everywhere I've been, maybe independent of Lima, um, but it has offered something really powerful for me around culture. But I think for me, the place that is just most amazing is the do lectures, you know? And I go to the do lectures in the UK I wish the world was like this, you know? People feel like you can, there's a great sense of empathy. You can be vulnerable in the most amazing way. Guys, you know, have this immediate intuitive response of removing any armor or mask that they have. And then people open up in the most incredible way. And it's a supportive community. And David, who runs it, you know, he asked me to run Do USA. I was like, do we need to do a contract? He's like, no, we're on a napkin or something, but. But Nike and Seven Denner and Lululemon each offered, a, I think, a really interesting cultural experience as well for me that was positive. Tell me more about the Do Lectures. For those who may or may not have seen them, um, heard of them, can you give us an explanation of, of what that concept is? Yeah, so David and Claire Hyde are this amazing couple. They created this company called Howie's, which is like the action sports like Patagonia in the UK. They ultimately sold it to uh, Timberland. And they had this idea to bring people together in, in Wales. It's built on this idea called two films. And so David is a really eloquent writer. And he wrote this manifesto and basically it says on your deathbed, when you're looking back on your life, you see this film, which is your life. And he's like, man, more often than not, there was a second film that you, you mothballed, whether it was because of the voice of cynicism or judgment or lack of courage you didn't consider. 
And so this whole premise around the do lectures is to uh, curate conversations around people who embody the second film. It's a good example, by the way, of the world doesn't need another quote unquote festival or idea talking thing, but because it's unique, well, it doesn't compete. It's, it stands for something. And so anyways, it's uh, 150 people now flock to this remote town in Wales called Cardigan, and it's on his old, old farm. And the talks are in a chicken shed, and people camp out in tents and teepees and yurts, and um, you get like a mad hatter crowd. It's like all walks of life. It's just really beautiful, really beautiful. Yeah. I remember that print, you had that a print of that that piece on your wall in yeah. your office at Lululemon, and I remember you know I le I left while you were still there. I I I left the building and uh, and quit. I remember taking a photo of that print and posting it on Instagram at the time to say, you know, this is me pursuing film number two. Yeah. Um, so I remember that vividly. I think that's what I loved about it as well, is I think a lot of times in life we can exist, but what does it mean to be truly alive? And I mean, in your case, my God, like you had this identity with Lulu, but really you had this identity as this rock star athlete. And then you had obviously a tragic bike accident, which I still blows me away. And I just applaud the, like how you were like, all right, like my chosen responses and to like wallow even in the hospital man you're the most positive dude i was like i think this guy got hit in the head. <laughs> but i think that's the beauty of that premise which is to always be curious like am i am i existing right now or am i really alive? that's why i left when i left nike after 16 years that one of the execs at nike is like dude you just committed career suicide i've never been more sure with thing i'm going to a place with 50 people 50 million I have no idea if it's going to survive, but I'm going to yeah. feel alive doing it. And like, yeah. I'm, I'm in business usually plays it really safe. Like now everything's growth marketing and predictive outcomes. And I'm like, gone is the serendipity, the integrating the unexpected. Like I don't want to measure everything. I'm guessing that's probably part of the, the struggle you had at Lime, you know, given the, given the Uber influence, it was probably, how do we just, you know, plot this on a graph? And if you're not meeting those numbers, then you're not doing your job. Well, a lot of it was, and by the way, this isn't just exclusive to Lime right now. I have been in the CMO, what, what app chat group. I think like it's a self-help group. I think the chief marketing officer needs to evolve. We're going to do growth marketing. So I'm going to spend $5 and I know it's going to deliver X. And or I'm going to do like, you know, just email campaigns around free unlocks or discounted rides. And I'm like, you know, we did a lot of Lululemon around direct uh, marketing and performance marketing, but we did it with a sense of intention and purpose around what we stood for. And that had a different impact versus I don't wake up in the morning thinking what I need to do to drive traffic. I'm wake up thinking, how does the world get to see and feel and trust this brand in a different way? I love that. I love the way you approach things. And I, you know, there's a couple of things that I remember specifically from the time there, you know, one of the first introductions you made about yourself, you, you told everyone you're going to spend the first six months listening. And I was like, okay, I can, I can vibe with this guy. Like he's going to be open to ideas and he's going to, you know, take it all in. And the other thing you said in that, in that moment was quiet your cleverness. And that was your constant thing yourself of like having to quiet your own cleverness to, to see the, the other ideas through and open up to new opportunities. Tell me about kind of that, those two kind of ideas or ideals. Well, they're, they're deeply connected. I, I think, I put myself from a place of empathy. If someone new comes in and right away starts changing shit, I'd be like, Christ, you didn't even take the time to learn about this place. And Lululemon has such a deep culture. You recognize like 
the yeah. last thing they need is some cavalier dude coming in here like yeepie, like hey i'm gonna change the world and so i wanted to let people know that they're they're being heard and i was like trying to really listen it doesn't mean i always agree with everything but i was like i want to understand it it's a lot of what i learned through my wife in horsemanship you know she's big in a horse whisper stuff and it's like how do you understand the essence of, of something like a quick story years ago my wife was like i need you to go to this horse clinic and just pretend you're going to have a good time uh it was in springfield mass actually and um in this big arena and this horse whisperer guys in the middle of the ring and this woman brings her horse in up the trailer and it's going batshit crazy and she runs out of the ring and the horse run around and then 10 minutes later the guy never touches the horse but the horse is following him it's called join up at a shoulder and i looked at my wife i'm like i don't know what i just watched but i gotta learn more because that's the most fascinating thing of like one of the most fascinating things i've seen and the whole premise is that horse whisperer would say, I need to take a gallon of you and put it in me, not a gallon of me and put it in you. So yeah. when I pause at Lululemon, I'm just trying to like, I got to understand this place. And that connects to quite in, you know, like our cleverness. Like when people aren't curious, I think that's the thing that for me is nails on chalkboard. And there's a great uh, quote from Krishnamurti, who an Ojai here would say, beware the man who knows. If you look in some of my moleskins, <laughs> Sometimes my only note is just beware of the man who knows because I'm I'll be in meetings and people be like, yeah, no curiosity, be like, okay, this is my like way to get grounded again. So, anyways, yeah, and nature is the ultimate leader around how to quiet our cleverness, and she's flourished for 3.8 billion years. So, I actually think we might want to listen to how nature does things. Yeah, I, we've got we could we could cover so much more because I know that you're into um, and I'm I'm probably going to butcher this, but it's uh, biomimicry. Um, yeah. And you're in, yeah, tell me a little bit about that. Tell me the, the kind of the Coles notes of, of what you're working on there. It's really simple. I think so often in life we uh, learn about nature, but we don't learn from nature. But like I said earlier, three for three point eight billion years, like nature's created the conditions conducive to life. So how can you take some of the life's principles within nature and bring them into your life or your business world. What people don't know is that Lulu, for example, I brought in a lot of horsemanship and I brought in a lot of biomimicry without saying that explicitly. You know, like law of nature would be a life principle is nature doesn't try to maximize things, it tries to optimize things. But in business, we're trying to maximize everything. Mm -hmm. Think about Patagonia, if they wanted to be 5 billion, they could be 5 billion. Like they're pretty intentional about their growth. I'm obsessed with that as a learning vehicle. I was at this Forbes event and I was asked what business book I, people would suggest I tell them to read. I was like, anything but a business book. And you can check out Janine Banyos, the founder on TED. She did a couple of great global TED talks. Sarah Webster, our dear mutual friend uh, from Lululemon Days, has a question here. She, uh, she wants to know, given the current state of the world, what are some of the daily practices that you have right now that allow you to find or create joy and wonder? I mean, I, I will say this. I, I love the fact that yoga and meditation have come into my life. I find that just uh, just the beauty of breath is such an amazing practice. Um, and I learned that through so many beautiful people at Lululemon. Um, and now my wife is a practicing, you know, she's a yoga teacher and practicing Buddhist. I love to be in nature. So every morning I get up at the sunrise and I take the dogs up into the hills and it's just my time. I love to read interesting things that are off the beaten path and i love love my gravel bike <laughs> like i'm i'm interested. i i would say 99 percent of my rides are solo 
one, it's because I don't want to get past, but two, I just love the, it to me, it's a moving meditation and I can process headwinds, constraints, life. And then I'm like, okay. I mean, even my wife, like she knows, she's like, just get on your bike. I'm like, yeah, get out yeah. And then I'll come back. I'm like, I'm good. I want to finish with three questions that I've asked every single day. The first one is, uh, what's one thing that, that has changed for you during this isolation period that you're happy to keep once we move back to whatever the next phase of normal is? I just love quiet time. I love solitude. It reminds me as a kid growing up as a, uh, on a farm with no one else around, and I just think there's beauty in the boredom of life. What's one thing that you thought was important before all of this went down uh, that you're happy to leave in the past? Oh, man. It's a good question. I was going to say uh, a job, but I think it's maybe ego. Truthfully, letting go of ego is, is probably, yeah, that's the ego. Yeah. <clears throat> Do you think that comes from that feeling of, you know, the, the, the brand team's gone? Do you, is that, was that a hit to the ego? Is that what you're kind of referencing when that happened? Or is it just in general, letting go of whatever you kind of slipped into around ego? Well, it's hot. You know, you go to some place with the intention of making a difference. And when you don't, you know, it's like anything. If you train for a race and you de depth, you're like, that yeah. sucked. But um, yeah, so me, it's just letting go of that. Like that's yeah. and the, the reason that's the only thing that's inhibiting me from doing that is ego. So. Yeah, yep. understood. Um, final question. What's been your most memorable moment of joy or other, uh, but most memorable during this this period of isolation? You know, I, I commuted to Vancouver for three plus years. I commuted to San Francisco for, you know, almost a year and a half. I think being with my wife every day. I mean, man, I just got lucky. I have the most, like you, I think we both found really amazing soulmates. And um, I think learning from her and just reconnecting in a different way has been, you know, I think I took some things for granted, candidly. I'm like out there doing shit. And anyway, she's just, for me, she's like a source of nutrition for me. So that yeah. part is amazing. Um, I will say this as well. The way that you speak about your wife and the interaction and the love that you have is inspiring as well. So I just want you to know that uh, I recognize that in you uh, and it makes me want to follow in your path around you know, how to treat and talk about and love your, your partner. This has been awesome, mate. I appreciate your time. Uh, it, we should do it more often because I, I always get uh, so much inspiration um, and, and knowledge from you and, and yeah, you're a great dude and I really appreciate your, uh, your, your guidance and time. Thanks for having me, man. I love you. You're an epic, epic, interesting human and uh, the world needs you. So thank you for this. Thank you, Duke, for sharing your wisdom and thoughtfulness with us all. Following this recording, I ran to honor Ahmed Arbery, who was shot and killed while running in Georgia. Friday, May 8th, would have been his birthday. My entire Strava feed was filled with people running for more. So with a heavy heart, I realized that it's time for us all to do more. I have a responsibility to share the stories of the whole endurance sports community, and I pledge to do that. I don't pretend to have all the answers, but I'm open and curious to the situation we all face. What more can we all be doing to ensure this never happens again? I'm open to thoughtful discussion on how Inner Voice can support, and I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Please go and hug your loved ones and take care of each other.